Hey everybody, this is Gerrit Mankiewicz, rock photographer on Follow Your Dream with uh, Robert Miller. And I just would love you to listen to it all over the world. Take care. Bye. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Dana Gillespie an English actress, singer, and songwriter. But that description alone doesn't do her full credit. She was a big part of the UK rock scenes starting in the 60s and had professional and personal relationships with David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Keith Moon, Jimmy Page, and many others. As a musician, she started out as a folk artist but gravitated to the blues and even to Sanskrit. David Bowie wrote the song Andy Warhol for her and participated in her album, and she sang background on his Ziggy Stardust album. She was also Mary Magdalene in the first London production of Jesus Christ Superstar, and she appeared on the original London cast album. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my guests, Dana and I are going to do a song fest where we're going to play a handful of her best works and we're going to talk about them and you'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Feeling So Good from my new album, Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. Why? Well, this song features Deobrat Mishra, the great Indian sitar player. And Dana has recorded a whole bunch of Indian albums. So I thought that it fit. So Dana Gillespie, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, Robert. Very nice to speak to you from across the pond. All right. Well, let's go right to Bowie, because I want to hear about this. How did you meet him, and how did you become such an integral part of his career? When I was, I suppose, 13 or 14, I was mad about the blues and used to go to a famous place called the Marquee Club, and I'd listen to the Yardbirds, which, of course, was with Eric Clapton in those days, and then later on Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck. And one of the bands that came on stage supporting one of these groups was David Jones and the Manish Boys, and that was David's real name, actually. So when the concert was over, I must have been 14, maybe, underage anyway, I was standing at the back of the club just brushing my waist-length blonde hair, and he comes back, and I was quite kind of old, old, much older looking than my years, as teenage girls can be, and he came up and took the brush out of my hair and whispered rather pleasantly in my ear, can I come home with you tonight? And I said, yes. So that was the kind of start of it. And so I had a room with drums and all equipment and everything and uh, in my parents' flat. 
I introduced him to my parents. So we always stayed friends. He would come and he'd play me new songs. He sang, he sang Space Oddity to me half an hour after he'd written it. And I would run him through some of my songs. So we we were just very good friends, actually, you know. And, and, and then he, in 1970, we both needed a job, actually. We both auditioned for hair and both got turned down, <laughs> which was kind of funny. Um, but then he, well, through his then wife, Angie, she, uh, and he sort of found this man called Tony DeFries, and he called me and he said, I think we found our perfect manager. So I moved into the main man's stable of being managed by by them and for a while Lou Reed was there and Iggy Pop was very much in evidence and so by this time he was now David Bowie yes he was already he'd gone to Bowie by then he'd had a few he'd had a few I mean he'd had a few albums out and Space Oddity was a hit but then there was something like six years before anything happened again and everyone was worried that he'd be a one-hit wonder but you know we always hung out musically and um he was meant to produce my fourth album, Weren't Born a Man. You said that slightly wrong. He didn't actually produce it. Strangely enough, I produced it with Mick Ronson, who was, of course, then his guitarist. And from that moment on, I've nearly always been involved in the production, sometimes a co-production, but I prefer to produce myself anyway. I love production in studios. I can sit for months if needed. Studio work is what I adore. And so Bowie, the moment he moved and lived in America full stop from 1975, I didn't see him anymore because I don't really go to America, although I'm going to South by Southwest in March in Austin, Texas, which will be a blast, I hope. Good for you. How did that come about? Well, my name was submitted here. Apparently they saw they have 7,000 names and they pick 300. I'm not sure why they picked me. Somebody's got a sense of humour. Then then I kept thinking, <laughs> am I going to be the oldest one there or any other Brits? And then I looked at the list of the 300 and at the bottom of the list, because it's in alphabetical order, is a group called the Zombies. Oh, of course, one of my favourites from the 60s. If she's not there was their big hit. So that'll be nice. Um but, you know, it's something new for me because I haven't really been back to America more than a for a few days short time since the 70s. So, Well, South by Southwest is quite a scene. I mean, you're going to really be experiencing something that's unusual there because it's just there's hundreds, if not thousands of people and all different things going on in all different places. I assume you're performing there, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I am. The band's coming over. They're called the London Blues Band, but we will do numbers like Andy Warhol. I mean, I didn't sing that song for years because first of all, I never quite understood why Bowie said he wrote it for me and he's publicly announced this. And it's a weird song, you know, Andy Warhol did actually have something to do with my fourth LP cover, which is quite nice. And I've got one of the, there were three made up and I got an original one that sits behind my fridge. You realize what you could do with that on eBay, okay? I don't know how to do I'm so non-tech now. I don't know how to do that stuff. Trust me, if you've got an original Andy Warhol, that's worth a lot of money. Well, yeah, but I, I probably, if I had been Marilyn Monroe, that makes it much more uh, more uh, saleable, obviously. I'm just kind of sitting on it. There were three versions, and our manager, Tony DeFries, has one, but he lives in South Africa, and I'm not sure where the third one is. That a bit is a bit of a mystery, but it's like that. There was a very famous album that were only about three or 400 copies printed of Bowie on one side and me on the other, 
which some bright spark has kind of has bootlegged it out. It's called the Bow Promo. And again, nobody thought it was going to do anything or be anything. But what, apparently each copy, if you have an original, which I do have one original left, is about five, $6,000, or it was at last looking. But I don't look at machines much, so I have to wait till people tell me this stuff. Well, we could have a worldwide scavenger hunt for all of these <laughs> things that you just mentioned, okay? Kind of our version of Where's Waldo? This will yeah. be uh, where, Where's Walhall? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> All right. That should be interesting. You know, as you were speaking about David Bowie, th there's a photo that I saw, I think, when I first looked you up, where it's you and Bowie together, but he's got long hair down to his shoulders. He didn't look at all like the David Bowie that we all know. So that must have been taken at that original time when you first met him. Am I right? His eyes, guess, mid-60s. Yes, he had very lemon yellow hair at one point. Uh, so at one point, it was brushed over to one side, so he looked a bit like he had a Veronica Lake hairdo, which older people will know who I'm talking about, you know, but long. And yet in the newspapers, they were saying the Beatles, who just had their first single out, that they had long hair. Their hair was hardly touching the collar. This Bowie was quite unusual. So much so that after the first night that I met him in the morning, I had to get him past my parents' bedroom. So as chance would have it, they were just coming out of their room as I was trying to get Bowie down the stairs, David as he was then, down the stairs, introduced them. And my father actually thought it was a girl with me because you just didn't <laughs> see long hair in those days. It was unheard of. But he was great. He often used to, he sometimes used to pick up, pick me up from school, carry my ballet shoes. And uh, we always just remain really good friends, with which I'm very happy about, you know. So I'm curious. I mean, you knew him in before he was Bowie, okay? Yes. Did you think that he was going to become the star that he did become? Was that a surprise to you? No, nothing surprises me anymore. But I, I, no, I didn't think that he'd be as iconic as he's become because... In those days, I don't think any of us did. I mean, he might have thought it, but nobody could know how big he could get because the only yardstick we could measure fame across the pond would be, let's say, Elvis. We had nobody else that was that big as a solo artist. And, you know, Main Man was amazing, you know, and Angie, his then wife, really helped with the styling of him. And But he had the oomph, or I could say the balls, to carry it through and become this character. I've always felt that he was actually better off playing a character than when he was actually being him. Because I'd seen him doing his miming stuff in the 60s. You know, he learned from this maestro called Lindsay Kemp. So, no, I never thought it'd be like this. And, of course... I think he will be iconically remembered long after his death, whereas some people, they kind of fade away. I think Bowie keeps keeps getting more and more fans because the music is was so different. They're quite tough songs to sing. Not many people cover his songs because... I mean, how could you suddenly burst into life on Mars and sound convincing? He 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 was very good at that. But I'm actually thinking of doing a Bowie song on the next album that I'm recording in May with a singer called Mark Armand. There's so many artists that I've interviewed on this podcast from the 60s, famous artists, everyone from John Lodge to Kenny Jones, for example. And they all made the comments to me that at the time, they all thought that this was going to last, you know, maybe a couple of years. And their friends would say to them, you're 19, what are you going to do when you're 21? Okay, because nobody had the thought 
that this was going to go on for decades. And here it is. So much of this music has survived 50 plus years. Isn't that remarkable? It is remarkable because I think the music that was made in the 60s, actually, and, and take us right into the maybe the first half of the 70s, is something that will be less forgotten than music that's being made now. I mean, I might hear that something that's a sort of a hit record, but you can't really sing along to it. It's often to do with the beat yes. or the groove. And, and in those days, melody was all important. Uh, and so I rate the music from then as important as Cole Porter and Irving Berlin. You know, I love a great lyric. And the lyrics were more interesting then as well. Um, they weren't just, you know, the he, she, it. I mean, Bowie made sure that his lyrics were interesting. All of them were great, you know, from the old days. I loved the, the 60s was a fabulous time to grow up. I was so, so lucky. But of course, I was busy being a folk singer then because I couldn't afford a blues band or any band. So I went out on my own, strumming away with a short skirt and a bit of cleavage, hoping that people weren't really watching me strum away on my 12-string guitar, which Bowie also played a 12-string guitar. Because if you're not that great as a guitarist, put an extra six strings and have a trouble <laughs> and it makes the sound kind of bigger and jammed. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I still have that 12 string here, but I don't really play anymore. I've got such a great band. I don't really need to pick up an instrument. It doesn't thrill me like it used to. All right. Before we get to the song fest portion, I want to ask you about your playing Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar. Talk about that era. Well, I was very lucky actually because, uh, you know, it was the most talked about film role that was going on in London in 1972. And I always had a feeling that I should be Mary. I mean, I really thought I, this was a role meant for me. And uh, I went to the open auditions and they instantly took me in the chorus. But before the show had even opened, they kicked out the girl who was Mary and brought me in. So I had six days to actually learn it. And I knew I was really pleased because my hunch had always been that I was going to get that role. And it worked out that way. And it was it was groundbreaking stuff before the show had even opened. We had to go to rehearsals and fight our way through nuns and, and holy priests or whatever, picketing outside the dressing, the back, the stage door saying blasphemous and how can you? Because even putting the word Jesus Christ next to the word superstar was a bit over the top. It's controversial, yes. It was very controversial. But then our Archbishop of, I can't remember which one, Canterbury or something, came to the show on the opening night. And it was a very moving show. I mean, people have got used to it now. But then, it, as I said, it was groundbreaking. And, um, it, you know, from the moment he gave it the ecclesiastical thumbs up, we were all okay. And I stayed with it for a year. But by that time, Bowie and the whole main man packaging had moved to America. So the moment the show was over, I went to America too, because our manager said we should go there. And I went taking with me the star drummer, a young kid who was then only 16, called Simon Phillips, but he's now known as one of the world's greatest drummers. But he stayed in, I, so I lived in New York for two years, but quite a few months with Bowie and his then wife, Angie, and Zoe, as he was called, was the baby, who's now Duncan Jones, the filmmaker. But, you know, I kind of, you know, this is this was, they were great times, wild times. You have to read my memoirs, Robert, to know what went on then. De Vries had given me a Polaroid camera. He said, go and take pictures. So I've got loads of never-before-seen Polaroids in my memoirs, which is called Weren't Born a Man, because it's I was I had access to all this, these wild times. And then these kind of 
they was they're bigger remembered stars now, but we were just pals having fun. <laughs> well, it looks like you did have a lot of fun. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician, in addition to being the host of this podcast. With my band, Project Grand Slam, I've released 12 highly acclaimed albums, including Trippin', which went to number one on Billboard. And we've got millions of video views and streams. My latest album, is called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. It's been called Album of the Year by Indie Shark. I released this album in a novel way via five episodes of this podcast. And I'm pleased to say that those episodes have been downloaded over 50,000 times in more than 130 countries. I invite you to listen to the album. It's available on Spotify, and all the other streaming services. And I also invite you to check out all the episodes of this Follow Your Dream podcast. I've had so many amazing, famous musicians and others as guests on the show, all of whom have followed their dream to success. The episodes are fun and entertaining, and we must be doing something right because the podcast is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with listeners in 200 countries. How about that? So every episode is like taking a world tour. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails, which keep you up to date on everything. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, let's go to the Songfest portion because I want to get this in. And we're playing right now that song that you mentioned called Andy Warhol. To people in my brain, two new pens to have a go. I'd like to be a gallery, put you all inside my show. And you walk on the street, hanging on my wall. And you walk on the street, can't tell the door to Tell us what your feelings and recollections are all these years later about that song. Well, I, I kind of, I'm growing to love it more than, I felt kind of, it, it's a very abstract lyric, let's face it, and I tend to sing about much more emotional things, but Bowie is quite well known for writing lyrics a bit off the wall. So, so I, why, did he, why did he write this and say it was for you? Well, who knows? That's going to be the mystery. He, I mean, uh, so the story goes, I wasn't there in this meeting. He was in New York, met Warhol, who was not really that interested when he heard the song played to him, but he was more interested in the colour of Bowie's shoes. But 
we'd already recorded this and he didn't want to record. He's If you hear my version on the Weren't Born a Man album, you can hear David doing backing vocals. He was my backing girl singer and he's strumming the 12-string guitar. And then he liked my version so much that he went and did his own version, which I think is on the Hunky Dory album. And I like his version very much. And he got his version out before mine because I was still stuck in Superstar and needed to finish the album. So they were all in America. So I, I feel I feel good when I hear it. I'm not sure which version you're going to play because there are now quite a few of them. There's the original recording. There's about three versions that were found on some long lost tapes with Bowie and Mick Ronson, just acoustic or maybe a couple of the spiders from Mars. And I just re-recorded it on my latest album recorded live. It's The album is called Live at the Temple of Art and Music. Is there one of the original versions that you particularly like? I like them all. Hey, you know, I love all my babies. Those are my babies. Yes, I understand how you feel. All right, let's go to the second one. This is Weren't Born a Man. Tell us about this one. Well, you know, when I was on the cover of the album wearing sort of a black corset, stockings and suspenders, which was considered outrageous then. You were kind of out there, weren't you? Visually. Well, yes, but exactly the same time, Bowie was wearing a dress on his, I think it was the Man Who Sold, Sold the World album. So Main Man had a reputation of being a bit outrageous. We slightly milked it, of course. Bowie maybe more than me, but obviously I'm not walking around to the supermarket shopping wearing stockings and suspenders. But in those days, girl singers never wore anything like that. You know, I mean, they're all girl singers were usually, you never even had sort of bustiness. It was all rather clean in a way. Now, obviously, I always say nowadays, some of the girl singers are just wearing dental floss. But at the time, <laughs> it was it was very good. So it was a few people said, oh, she's written a lesbian song. It's actually not. Uh, I can tell you it was written about my assistant. She, DeFries, our manager, said we all had to have an assistant. So I got this wonderful girl, Sandra. We had a lot of fun. But she then became Annie Lennox's personal assistant. So it, it was the... Uh, it, but. <laughs> You know, everyone thought I was being writing a lesbian song. It wasn't. I was just writing it for my best pal. It is interesting how, you know, once a song goes out into the world, you never know exactly what the reaction is going to be, either from the critics or from, the, you know, the, the masses out there. And I, I like the fact that so many artists, and it sounds like you're one of them, they don't comment on what the original intention was. Let the world kind of decide for themselves what the song is. Well, that's the best way. And Bowie once said to me, I remember when we were in New York, New York, he said, never explain to people what your song's about. Leave it kind of wide open. So I probably shouldn't have said it's about my it's about my friend <laughs> Sandra. Let everyone think it's a it's a raving dyke song. <laughs> well, the fact that you wrote it for somebody is okay. But I'm just saying that the intention behind songs 
I think is sometimes left better unsaid. I agree with Bowie on that. Okay, let the world figure out what they want from that song. Yeah, each person can take what he wants or needs. Exactly. All right, let's go to the third one. This is Move Your Body Close to Me. Tell us about this one. Well, this was a song, I heard the melody being played. I was in Dubai about 50 years ago, and I heard this, Dubai was pretty primitive, I can tell you, and it was not like it is now. There was only one hotel there in those days. It's ridiculous now and I had heard this little kind of haunting melody on an old cassette machine from a an Arab sitting in the sand and I I liked the melody and I asked him can I buy the cassette and he said yeah I, I bought it from him played it a couple of times and then the whole thing fell to pieces so I never really got to hear the original again but I it did very well for me in Europe the original was actually a number one hit in various parts of Europe in 1983 and it's quite oriental sounding, but it was very early synthesizer days. You know, I didn't have real sitars, whereas now I've done albums with, you know, full Indian orchestras, which is a blast, I can tell you. All right. I want to get to your Indian side of things. OK, we're playing Om Shakti. Well, Shakti is a kind of power and Om is obviously kind of peace. And when everyone gets stressed around me, I go, Om, Om, as in chill out. And they all roar with laughter and forget what I was talking about. But it's this isn't one of my Sanskrit albums. The type of music that I do that's Indian, more Indian, is called bhajans. And it's a it's a sort of thing you'd sing in temples. And, and I've always been mad keen on this kind of music. But occasionally because i have an indian guru called sai baba who's no longer physically on this planet it doesn't matter i saw him when he was still alive i learned to do all these albums on each album that i did i always put the last song in english which is where om shakti has come from it's come from an album called inner view so uh yeah, so you're going to play that. Yippee! And <laughs> how and why did you get into this Indian side of things? Well, I read a book one day called Man of Miracles, and I thought, holy mackerel, if, if there is somebody actually walking on this earth doing these extraordinary things, then I want to check out for myself. And I did something I never normally do. I leapt on a plane three weeks later expecting for him to say, hello, I've been waiting for you. And he ignored me for 12 years. 
over years. <laughs> You're very persistent if he ignored you for 12 years. Well, there was a guy called Isaac Tigrit who started the Hard Rock Cafes and the House of Blues. He also had a very similar story to me. And he also had to sit, I think he waited also about 12 years till Sai Barber actually talked to us. But, you know, among thousands, I mean, thousands and thousands. So, you know, I, you know, I sent you that clip. So you have seen how many, it was over a million people there. Yeah, I have to say to everybody, Dana got me interested in this because she said to me, I'm going to send you a clip that's got a bigger audience than Woodstock in India. And that's exactly what it was. Well, people forget that there's a whole other life going on in India. So a lot of, but a lot of Americans, Indians who live in America, they know about Sai Baba. And I've been to America probably about six times in the last 10 years, but not to do blues stuff because I've been invited to go and sing and talk about my experiences with Sai Baba and the music. So I think, and I think I'm the only Westerner that Sai Baba asked me to sing every year for his birthday, except for two years when I couldn't get there. So that's a mega honor, you know, because all the big Indian stars go there or used to. It's sort of things have changed a bit, but it's still a huge pilgrimage point for many people. Well, speaking of mega honor, it's been a mega honor to me to have you on this podcast. We have been speaking with Dana Gillespie. You've had such an interesting life musically and otherwise, from David Bowie to Mary Magdalene to the uh, Indian audiences that you've appeared before. And now you're going to be at South by Southwest. So you're still rocking, baby. I'm still rocking. I Well, I mean, the moment my chops, the voice goes, then I'll just put my feet up and go, sorry, I'm going horizontal for the last leg of my life. But I, the secret is don't drink. I've always hated the taste of alcohol. And I swim every morning for about half an hour. And I've been doing that for years and years. And don't forget, I was British junior water ski champion for four years. And I was in the junior snow ski team. So I was always pretty sporty. Mind you, I've now got two new knees. You pay the price for all the follies you do when you're younger. But the voice is better. I, I, Somebody asked me if I could sing I Don't Know How to Love Him, the superstar song. I said I could sing it, but I can do the whole thing an octave deeper because I have to remind people when we get older, everything drops, including the voice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As I said, we've been speaking here with Dana Gillespie. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing all of your stories with us. Thank you, Robert. Till next time. All right, now we're going to listen to that song that started off the episode. It's a song from my new album. It's called Feeling So Good, featuring the great sitar player, Deobrat Mishra. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.